So, um, great, great to see people who've braved the cold to be here. And um, it's just really lovely um, to be here to share together. Um, we are travelling through the Minor Prophets um, because we think that they have things to say to us today. And um, I'm really finding that as um, people are speaking on these um, prophets. Um, so um, we're working our way through them. Just one um, prophet per week. So um, the challenge is um, to sort of sum up the prophecy or bring something out from the prophecy that we feel God um, may be having to say to us today in our situation. And this morning we've come to Malachi, which is the last of the minor prophets, and um, it sort of completes the Hebrew Bible, um, our Christian Old Testament, and then there's a silence before um, we open um, the Gospel of Matthew and read about the coming um, and the birth of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So um, Malachi has a very special place, and it, it has something to say about Advent, um, though not really um, directly about the birth of Jesus, um, more about Advent in a, in a bigger way. Um, so um, the way that I want to um, do this um, today um, is not really quite with a sort of polished, um, um, complete, rounded talk. What I want us to do is I want us to open ourselves um, as we go into this to really um, listen to God and to think what he might be saying to us um, through um, the, the messenger. And um, so, so I, I'm sort of challenging us to have open hearts and open minds. And as I um, speak, I, I, I want to reflect um, on something of what um, this little prophecy is saying. But I would love it if you were so with it and so with it in the spirit that you are um, able to apply this to your own individual life as we go through and to um, the, the community which is um, Glendale Church um, in Newbury and Thatcham. And I'm, I'm going to pray for that and just to make sure that you're at least awake at the beginning, I'm going to invite you to stand up if you're able to. So please will you stand um, with me and, um, and, and just sort of make a conscious effort to open your hearts and your minds to God's spirit as I pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, by your Spirit, please draw us right into your word so that we are able to hear your voice by your Spirit in our hearts and minds. May we hear what you are saying to us as individual Jesus followers as your people, and as a local church wanting to grow your kingdom in Newbury and Thatcham. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Around 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the early prophets 
um, were predicting that, first of all, the northern kingdom of Israel, and then after that, the southern kingdom of Israel, which is Judah, would be taken into captivity. They would be exiled. And of course, not all of them, just really the leading people. So they would be taken into captivity. Um, first of all, the northern kingdom by the Assyrian nation. And then following that, sometime afterwards, Judah by the Babylonian nation. And then we read about how under Nehemiah and Ezra, they returned to Israel. And again, it wasn't all of those. It was a proportion of them. And they returned with massive excitement and anticipation. Now, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who was um, prophesying before they were taken into captivity, also prophesied that they would be brought back 70 years later. And that was under Nehemiah and Ezra. That actually happened. And so they came back with massive excitement and anticipation because they knew that their prophets had foretold that this would happen. And they had all sorts of things in their minds that the prophets had said, which gave every reason for them to sort of be confused and not really know what order things were coming. And so they set about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and re-establishing worship there. Surely they would be thinking, surely the Messiah is going to come to the temple and be with us as the prophets have said that he would. He's going to help us. He's going to help us to bring God's kingdom on earth through his coming, as the prophets have said he would. And there were similar um, thoughts in the minds of um, the first believers around about 400 years later <coughs> when the Lord Jesus came and they recognised him as Messiah and believed that he was coming to set up his kingdom and then of course he commissioned his people to go into all nations and preach the gospel before his final return and it's 2,000 years later now. Well, a hundred years after um, the return of the people through Ezra and Nehemiah, Malachi writes, <clears throat> so there's a hundred years elapsed, and it's about 400 years now before the birth of John the Baptist, who's mentioned in Malachi as the prophet Elijah, and Jesus the Christ. And so the prophecy opens, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. 
Malachi means messenger. I'm not really at all sure who it was who wrote this book, but it takes on and the title Malachi, which means messenger. So we can think of it as the message from the messenger to God's people. And through this, we find out what's going on in Judah a hundred years or so after the return of the people under Ezra and Nehemiah, and particularly in Jerusalem. Well, it's bitterly disappointing. Sorry about that. God's people are disillusioned and disheartened. The temple is finished, but God's people have got into the state that they're living just like those before the captivity and the exile. Their love for God is cold. They've become careless and contemptuous of God and worship of him. They're increasingly distanced from him. And their distance from him is reflected in their worship and in their daily lives. That's a hundred years after the excitement of their return. As I've said, we stand 2,000 years after the return of Jesus Christ to be with the Father. So I think we might think, okay, that was 100 years. Um, Christians have been waiting 2,000 years for the promise of the return of Jesus Christ. And where were they? And where are we? Well, Malachi brings a strong challenge to the people of God in six messages. And the messages um, are presented in Malachi um, rather in a fashion that came to be adopted by the rabbis. It's quite different in the way it's presented to other prophecies. He presents them as disputes sort of arguments between God and his people. God says something, the people respond, mostly rudely and negatively. And so um, I want us to be thinking, um, what does God want to say to us today, 2,000 years after his coming. How are we doing today as God's people, as the church universal, and as a local church, Glendale Church in Newbury and Thatcham? What would God be saying to us today? And how will we answer him? So, the first message 
The first message, really, all of them, is very, very simple. It's in verse 2 of chapter 1. It's very easy to go past it. It's so short. But it is pregnant with meaning. It's huge. It's so simple. This is the message. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. I have loved you. Because we're looking back 2,400 years, we look back through Jesus. We wouldn't even be here in Malachi without Jesus. And we know that the Hebrew scriptures are full of these sorts of statements about God's love for his people. And they run through the New Testament. And I just want to bring to you um, just a few of the words from the New Testament, which are saying to us, through which God is saying to us this morning, I love you. I love you. First of all, the words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's how God has shown his love to us. The messenger, Malachi, and God's people at that stage knew nothing of God's love expressed through Jesus Christ. And this little passage um, from 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God loves you. God loves me. That's the banner over us. As it says in the Song of Solomon, his banner over me is love. And just, I just want you to see that this morning. 
And wherever you are in your walk with God, I want you to hear that word. And this is what the messenger says the people are saying effectively as he looks at their lives and at their worship. He says, But you ask, how have you loved us? We don't see it. They throw it back. In God's face. And so I ask, how do I um, respond when I hear God saying to me, I love you. I've come to you through my son. I've died for you. I've promised you that I will return. I've chosen you to reach out to those around you and to bring God's love, my love, to them. How do we respond? Do we really, really know God's love so that we can look into God's face, as it were, and say, I know you love me. I know you love me. Thank you for your love. I praise you for your love. I respond to your love. Now, the response that God then gives in this dialogue is very strange for us, as are many things in the prophets. They just are, and uh, we find it hard to cope with some of it, um, to understand some of it, and um, I'm not going there. I'm not, it's not really relevant to what we're doing this morning, um, and that, that quite often happens when we're going through um, books of the Bible like this, but what I want to say is that I spend a lot of time thinking about those things, and, and I'm always very, very happy to spend time um, discussing them with any of you. If you have um, problems and they're problems to you and you want to raise them um, with me and there are other people who you can raise them with, then great to have um, some time deliberating over a coffee or something. Just, that's, that's just an open invitation always. And it's fantastic when people take it up. I just really love it. So um, what um, happens is we get this, this, this verse um, which the people in their day understood and got it's a sort of proof of God's love for them somehow, um, and you can get behind that. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I'm not going to rush past it because Paul quotes that verse in Romans, and it causes a lot of problems for Christians because we think, well, this isn't God love? What does this mean? 
And um, it's, it's not that easy to get your head around it. And I'm not saying that I can give you satisfactory answers, but I'm saying that um, we can knock it around, and that's um, an interesting thing to do. So it means something to the people of Israel because it reminds them that God has chosen them to partner him in his work. He hasn't chosen Esau, who sold his inheritance, his birthright, for a bowl of soup. Okay. The second message follows in verse 6. And this um, takes up um, the largest portion of the book of Malachi. So, in verse 6, um, God says, through Malachi to the people, a son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father... God would say, I am. Where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. We need to hear this. Um, for the Semitic people, that's people like Jews and people living in, in, in that area, and there's still sort of Semitic people in the East today. Um, if you go to Afghanistan, you see this absolutely firsthand. You know, I've been able to go there, and you really see this sort of thing firsthand. For the Semitic people, the relationship with a father isn't, first of all, one in which um, love is expressed. Um, Malachi um, has brought this message about love already. We've heard it. But it's about honour. It's about respect. And that's true across the Eastern world, that honour is really, really important. Honour and authority. And, and in the Western world, we don't really think very much about them. And when you read the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus, you come across this and from time to time. I mean, it really shows in the story of the two sons, um, who asked to do something, and one um, says, um, I'll, 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 do, I'll do what you ask, Father, and he doesn't do it. And um, the other one says, um, I, I won't do what you ask, but he does it. And, and when we ask the question in our Western world, which one was um, the, 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 the correct, the best response? Well, neither of them was pretty... Um, pretty good really but we say well the one who did it obviously because he actually went out and did it but if you ask um, somebody um, who um, who's in the Semitic world if you ask somebody in Afghanistan they will immediately say um, the one who said they would do it because you don't say to your father I won't do it that is completely dishonoring to him and there are other examples in the New Testament which we read quite differently to the way in which Semitic people would read them. So um, I, I, I want us to understand that, that the first priority of a son for a father is to honour him. 
in everything, to respect his authority. And God is speaking to his people and he says, look, if I'm your father, why is it that you dishonor me? And your priests dishonor me. They treat me with contempt. And the people say, how have we shown contempt to you? We haven't shown contempt to you, God. And the answer comes by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? They're still arguing. By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord? Now, I want you to think behind this. This isn't just about worship in the temple because the people's worship in the temple is very, very closely related to their daily lives. They're farmers. And as part of their worship, they bring the best. They should be bringing the very best produce from their farming to God. Why? Because it helps to keep up the temple. It feeds the priests and the Levites so that they are able to um, be healthy and run um, the, the, the service of God well. And so um, they're supposed to bring a tenth um, to God and they're supposed to bring regular sacrifices to God and it's supposed to be the very best of their flocks. And so you see, you, you, you can go from the temple where they're bringing diseased animals and lame animals, sort of not just second best but really weak ones, and you can go back into the field and watch them choosing them. Ah, this is a really healthy flock here. Um, we're going to make some good money from this um, at the market um, we need to send and take something to the temple um, on the Sabbath or feast day. Um, perhaps we won't send these really good ones that are going to get a lot of money. Let's, let's take um, these. This one's lame. That'll do. Um, this one's got a disease and we won't be able to take it to market. That'll do. And so on and so on. So it sort of reflects on their way of life. And their attitude to God in their way of life, in what they're doing for their work. So worship is really related to work. And our worship should be related to our work. And the message comes to the people, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you wouldn't light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will accept no offering from your hands. Now, when we were looking at Amos, there was a problem with the sacrifices, but it was a very different problem. 
The problem was they were bringing um, fantastic sacrifices and thinking that that was all brilliant, but their hearts were far from God. But here, they're bringing absolutely rotten sacrifices. And that does show that their hearts are far from God. And then this word comes in from God. It's really interesting, this. Um, Verse 11 of chapter 1. It's really, really instructive if, if, um, if you know that it was written in the present tense. And um, our authorised version, the first translation into, well, not the first translation, but the first well-used translation into English, immediately puts it into the future tense. And it's in the future tense in every Bible that I've looked at. I've looked at a few. But I'm going to read it in the present tense. Because that's how it's written. And it sort of is to shame God's people. My name is great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place incense and pure offerings are brought to me. Because my name is great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you're profaning it by saying the Lord's table is defiled. I find this just amazing. And it's really echoed in the prophet Jonah, which we haven't looked at yet. Where... People from the nations are seen to be honouring God at that time. And that's what this messenger is saying. And we miss it through it having been put into the future because people think, well, that was going to happen later on in line with some of the prophecies. But no, this is in the present tense in the Hebrew. And it is therefore relevant to the people. Look, you should be utterly ashamed of yourselves. You're supposed to be representing me to the people. Your worship, your way of life is appalling. It's just not honouring me at all. You're showing that you don't love me. You dishonour me. But there are people amongst the nations, you won't accept it who have a relationship with me that is healthy. You should be ashamed of yourselves. No room for the Israelites to think we're the special people of God here. And then there's a further word to the priests. It comes in chapter 2, and this is still the same um, accusation. Um, Your priests, now you priests, this warning is for you. If you don't listen and if you don't resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I'll send a curse on you. I'll curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you've not resolved to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung. Minor prophets getting just really direct and using earthly language again from your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. And you'll know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi, that's the priesthood, may continue, says the Lord Almighty. 
My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Now, this is, this is the point. For the lips of a priest, the lips of a leader of my people, ought to preserve knowledge. Because he, because they are the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from their mouths. But you've turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. So this is, this is a word for, for, for the leaders of God's people. And, you know, here, here we are 2,000 years later. Is God saying anything to us, to the leaders, about their responsibilities? The responsibility to develop knowledge of God, understanding of God and his ways. That takes dedication. It takes study. It takes giving yourself to learning God's ways, to understanding his word. And when we're thinking about today's church, it's just a very interesting question to ask. Is that something that is being done by the leaders of the church throughout the world? Developing a true knowledge of God and his ways in order to be able to instruct the people. Because when the people start to go their own way and dishonour God, then most often it's because the leaders have led that way. Usually by neglect. And I want us to ask the question here. And of course that means I'm asking the question of myself in Glendale Church. And it's a very challenging question. And what does it mean for us? What are the implications for us? I sometimes think that a community, a church... A gathering of God's people will be as strong and healthy as its leaders. Pray for the leadership. Be challenged to think whether God might be calling you into leadership. Think about what it takes. It's not really a glamour job if we're following God's ways. Okay, that's it. I thought we might only get that far. That's two examples of 
the message that comes um, through Malachi um, to God's people. In the third, God accuses the men of unfaithfulness to their wives. It's about immorality that's going on in the Christian community. The fourth message is God accusing his people of perverting the truth, of saying that good is bad and bad is good. The fifth message is God calling his people to turn back to him. They say, what do you mean? The sixth message is God accusing his people of arrogance, of saying, we know better than you. They've been showing that all the way through in these discourses. We know better than you. We're okay. Malachi's putting the words into their mouths. That's what he's seeing in effect is the way they're living. Those, they're saying these things to God through the way they're living. And Malachi recognises it. And shooting into um, the prophecy come these um, wonderful um, messages. Um, it's sort of not all gloom and doom, though it is pretty gloomy, this um, little prophecy. Um, glad we're doing it at Christmas. <laughs> um, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Well, we look back on that wonderful promise that we often use at this time of year. We take it out and we use it in isolation. And it speaks of the, the second coming of God, of Jesus Christ, to set up his kingdom. There's a shocking um, description of judgment in chapter 4. Um, that is part of the Messiah, and we recognise it as part of the Messiah. Sorry, it's not, the, it's not that. That's not the one that's part of um, the Messiah. It's the chapter 3 one that I'm referring to here, where he goes on to say um, that he will sit as a, a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And you can read that judgment about the day of the Lord and think, oh, this is about people out there. No, it's not. It's about the Levites, the leaders of God's people who failed. I'll purify them, says God. And so it's not really the end for them. Judgment might not be the end, you know. It can be a preparation. And this terrifying judgment of the Levites is to purify them, to equip them to turn them around. There's always hope with God. And then um, the day of the Lord is described in chapter 4, which we've heard about in other minor prophets, and the conclusion, which I'm just going to finish with, which points forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. um, After, Well, it doesn't point to, to, to him directly, but it points to John the Baptist. It concludes, and it's like a conclusion to the law and the prophets um, that have looked back and they look on 
And the messenger says, um, on God's behalf, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So, so God's, God shows his holiness and his righteousness, but he says, look, I'm sending Elijah again. It's John the Baptist. He'll preach um, the gospel of repentance, turning to God. And he points to the one who is the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world, through whom God's love is really shown. And this is all about the first advent, but it includes the second coming. And you know, the final challenge that I want to leave for us this morning, through um, the gloom, but the hope that comes with it as well, is this. It's 2,000 years, you know. I don't know where you are with this, but sometimes I think to myself, is this all true? 2,000 years since the coming of Christ? What's, what, what's the second coming all about? What's it going to look like? How's it really going to happen? I have all these questions buzzing around in my head. I don't know about you. It's 2,000 years. These guys were 100 years after they'd returned with hope. And do you know where I always end up? I just have to. I end up in a faith position, believing that it is true, hearing that God does love me, that he has sent his son, and he's come in his son, the word of God, to this world. He has suffered and died and risen again from the dead in order to bring new life and a wonderful hope. And I say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I hear an amazing word that Karl Barth once said, which is, don't take your unbelief too seriously. I think that's a wonderful thing. Let's be believing people. Let's truly worship from our hearts out of lives that are given to God and hold on to him. Amen.